Hi everyone and welcome to the Changing Tides podcast. In each episode, we invite guests to have honest conversations about their mental health journeys with the goal of destigmatizing mental health within the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Due to the nature of the podcast, we'll be discussing a variety of mental health topics and possibly triggering experiences. While we and the majority of our guests are not trained professionals, we encourage you to practice self-care while listening and seek professional guidance if you or a loved one is in need of support. With that said, let's start the episode. Hello, my name is Mia Yamamoto, and um, I would describe my mental health journey as long and convoluted with lots of wrong turns, lots of uh, false signals, and um, a, a place where I had to grope in the darkness because there was very few roadmaps or role models. Uh, when you're a minuscule minority, then you haven't got a lot of places to find some measure of support, dialogue, or, or um, awakening. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Changing Tides podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Yonamura. Welcome to another episode. Uh, we're so excited to have you and thank you for tuning in. As always, I mean, this podcast is pretty much built on the guests being great and they always are, but I really loved this conversation. Uh, I felt like I was talking to like a historical figure and I think she is. I really think she will go down as uh, someone that made history. So uh, I, I really don't want to get in the way of preventing you from hearing this conversation I got to have with this guests with this guest. So I want to just go ahead and get into it. You don't want to hear from me, you want to hear from today's guest. So with that said, here's the interview that I had with Mia Yamamoto. Mia, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I was telling you before we started recording this meeting, but we were introduced to one another through Terry Koyanagi. And Terry, uh, ever since she introduced me to you, I've been really looking forward to recording this episode. Um, but I loved your explanation of your mental health journey, the wrong turns, the lack of role models in your path and lack of a roadmap. So with all of that in mind, I'd love to hear, you know, why you described it as this. I think being a transgender uh, kid, trying to grow up in a place where it seems like there's nobody else in the world like you, you check around little places, try to find other people that have any measure of similarity with respect to the experience, trying to find something to compare it to, trying to discover oneself. And I think it happens with kids <clears throat> very early. So I, um, my experience is, is that it, it is like being bounced around in a pinball machine. Mm. Probably. Uh, you, know, you, you, do, you do find some times to bounce up and down and eventually you end up um, right back restarting. Mm. Mm. So, there's so much to discuss with you and in trying to navigate your mental health journey, there's so many avenues we could go. But I think to really get a full understanding, I would love to know like when you would say your mental health journey began. Like most transgender people, it begins about the time you discover that you are transgender, which is usually about five or six years old, which is the case for me. Um, it's one of the earliest things you become aware of is that you have an identity and the first thing you experience is the mismatch, that you are relegated into a rigid dichotomy on which you feel you're not on the wrong right side of that line. 
And uh, that feeling starts very early. It starts, and like I said, most people I've, and I've checked, talked to a lot of trans folks and read innumerable case and clinical histories. And uh, the earlier appears to be the norm. And so you start discovering that mismatch. And that's, that's when I think the mental health journey begins because you are encouraged because you are so singular by the community around you that you are singularly weird and that completely outside the norm, um, outside of people's expectations and even um, beyond their uh, limits of what they will accept in another human being. So those things are brought home to you very early. So mm -hmm. I would say the mental health journey started when I was five or six, because if it meant trying to find a place in a community where you're entirely mismatched <clears throat> and chronically mismatched, and it appears to be the nature of, of the community that you're uh, immersed inside, that uh, the crisis begins. Mm. And it spreads to your family, to your classmates, in my case, to my church, um, and uh, to school all the way through, completely uh, out of touch with the gender to which you've been assigned, mm -hmm. and completely instinctively, reflexively, responding to stimuli and to your life in the same way that a woman or a girl would respond mm. emotionally and uh, spiritually, if not physically. So yes, I mean, the mismatch gives rise to a lot of mental health uh, anxiety. Mm. So I, I, I appreciate that you continue to refer to this as this mismatch, um, because I think that breaks it down to you know, if, if folks might not understand what transgender is, you could just you could describe it as a mismatch, and that could kind of open someone's eyes, I think. And it's it's very a layman term for for what you were experiencing. But I, I'd also like to know, like you said, you started to notice this when you were five or six years old that you had yeah. this mismatch. But when did you really figure out the vocabulary to describe this feeling? Did you always consider it a mismatch, or when did you figure out the, the verbiage for it? The honest truth, and this is the weirdest thing ever, is the first time I ever heard the word transvestite was in the movie Psycho. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where after um, Anthony Perkins is arrested, dressed in his mother's clothing, um, the detectives are sitting around the table discussing, you know, what happened here. And, you know, one of them says, well, they're not just a transvestite because that's all they do is get this up in the clothing of the opposite sex, and boom. And that really struck me, I had, I had a word. Huh. And I could look up that word, and I can, I can, and the word wasn't very helpful in a sense, because all of a sudden it's the person who prefers to wear the clothing of the opposite gender. But I had a word, and I could find, I could look through it, I could search through the libraries and every place else in the world to try to find the answer to this anxiety, to this mismatch. So, um, that was the first time I heard that word. And the word transgender did not exist until fairly recently. There were two words. One was transvestite, and the other one was transsexual. And they meant two very different things. Um, although sometimes one is a stage of the other. Uh, a person can start off dressing, and it, it brings home to them that their identity is someplace completely different than what their birth uh, gender their assigned birth gender, and that mismatch, that that complete continuing 
uh, anxiety, which is really only quelled when you transition. You actually go through transition, come out and, and, and do what transgender people, people do, <laughs> what we do. But the main thing is this, yeah, I mean, the mental health journey was to believe very sincerely that I was mentally ill and that I, I was suffering from a sickness that uh, like all sicknesses, if you know the motif, you look for a cure for that sickness. You search for a cure. And for me, at least, after a lifetime of searching, I decided to settle for a cause. Because hmm. if I could find a cause, I, I felt like I could search for, for some kind of cure. Um, those are so many, I think it's a fuel journey that a whole bunch of people go through that. I think gay people just, just generally go through uh, searching for what the fuck is wrong with me. You know, <laughs> why, why am I feeling and, 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 and looking at the world the way I do, what's, what's wrong with me? Mm. I think that is a, sort of a common motif that I have uh, heard from in, in the rest of the queer community. Yeah. Um, so that part of it, feeling mentally ill has been uh, a journey that I think culminates in thinking that I'm really not, mentally ill, I just have to address the mismatch. And that, uh, in terms of a simple solution, which it's really not, you know, nothing simple about it, but at the same time, that one act, that one revolutionary rebellious act absolutely brings peace, joy, um, comfort, relief. Uh, mm -hmm. In so many ways, all one had to do was acknowledge and embrace one's identity in order to go forward um, peacefully and gracefully, hopefully. <laughs> and speaking of lack of roadmaps or role models, the first interaction with this transvestite word is in the movie Psycho, which definitely yes. isn't the role model necessarily for... <laughs> be that one. Right. So, like, considering that's your first interaction, I can only imagine... It confirms the mental illness diagnosis right. that we're self-diagnosing at right. that time, and I was a teenager when this was happening, I had never seen the word before. And right. it absolutely sent me, you know, flying to the library, trying to find everything I could find under that, under that word. Uh -huh. It just shows the kind of isolation that trans people feel. There really aren't resources around them. There's no conversation available. And very few um, therapeutic sources, or certainly knowledgeable ones. So I went to some ones. Yeah. I had some therapists that uh, really, um, you wonder where they got their license because they're just so completely fixated on their own ideas mm. <clears throat> that they can't really look at the data. Right, right. Can't look at it, honestly, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Even nowadays, um, there have been instances where we've seen that, even in like this day and age. And I know, I mean, you can look at the news and you could, this day and age, it's hard to see the progress that we've made in this matter. Like, uh, especially in certain states across this it country. It's see progress. Yeah. It's see progress. I mean, I know. I think the, I see progress, and I'm really happy for everybody, but I see the confrontation between us and the right-wing Republicans who are using trans people as their political, um, their, their means of getting to the bigots in order to get their votes. Right. So making, you know, attacking trans people for political gain uh, for political advantage and political benefit is something that now I, I get up when I've got a chance, I speak out against that. I feel like if I've got this platform, any kind of an opportunity to be in dialogue or conversation or when I make speeches, I always make sure I, I include 
the significance of the attack on transgender people. So that's that's politically something that um, I'm all over it. Basically. Right, right. I just got an award from criminal justice uh, section of L.A. County Bar Association, and um, I just let it rip. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Mia, that's something I'm going to want to ask you about is all these awards that you've gotten. But um, before we get into that, because I still want to ask a little bit about your early years, because, again, there's so much I want to talk to you about. But yeah, yeah, you know, in your first five years of life, you know, Mm -hmm. even then you were going through a very, you know, you're going through this mismatch realization, but you're also going through a very huge event in Japanese American, American history as a whole. Did you have any memories of your experiences at this time? And wh- where, where were you? Well, I was born in 1943 in, in Ocean, Arizona, um, the camp there where that my family was sent to. And it was the result of a whole lot of different things because my dad was actually a community activist. And I'm clear when I look back in a retrospect in terms of how they moved our family out of the Manzanar community, instead of supposed to, because he was an agitator. He was a protester. He was a dissident. He was opposed to the incarceration. And interestingly enough, at that time, the Japanese American Citizens League was essentially aiding and abetting the um, concentration camps. They, they were the, the collaborators. And they, of course, were in conflict with my dad. You know? But anyway, so, I mean, that, I came out of camp feeling like that same kind of mismatch. Mm. We are Japanese Americans, but we're Japanese. Right. And... Um, and they are treated differently, and they feel as though it's, it's a justified thing that they can do. They can treat us that way if you're at war with Japan. And um, there were a lot of things that my father was known for was fighting for the Issei, because he felt that the Issei were being marginalized and, and really sort of like put on the edge because the citizens didn't want to be associated with them. Uh, they were labeled as enemy aliens. And my dad felt that they were the ones that were being scapegoated and, and treated worse than the citizens. And they were being aided and abetted by the citizens. So his thing, he was fluent in both Japanese and English. And he was a lawyer, of course. So advocating for people was his, his thing. And based, advocating for the powerless, uh, in the case of the non-citizen Issei, um, was something that, um, well, that would be the theme of his life, actually. So that's something I got to see coming back to East Lake because that whole thing was happening because I was witnessing the resettlement. You know, my, we moved back to East LA eventually and uh, where we had lived before the war. And I got to see sort of the attitude of everybody towards the Japanese, which was not real good. Even the Mexicans didn't like us. It was mm-hmm. like, wow. You know, at least at first. They, right. they realized my mom, my mom turned Mexican when we were living in East LA. She could, Speak Spanish really well, got really good cooking with, with all the, the moms over there. But in any event, so that being Japanese is another form of mismatch in the sense that, you know, um, what they did to us appeared to be fine with everybody. The fact that everybody sort of disliked us was consistent with the idea that they would put us all in camp. The idea that they would drop atomic bombs on, on uh, Japan, you know, wasn't my country, but it just seemed kind of like that was okay with everybody because, you know, if it was... Even if it was Germany, people would be horrified that we, that we would annihilate white people with such impunity. So you, you're very specifically um, reminded of your race and right. its significance in society and its sort of disfavored uh, status in society. 
So to, to be that and to be in that intersection, to be different, to be weird, mm. to stand out in any negative way was a really horrible thing to a resettling Asian American community trying their best to fit back in, to be accepted, to be um, treated with any level of equality after that experience. Uh, you, you try really hard. Every person that would do something like go out dressed as a woman, for instance, would, would be seen as a disgrace and a scandal and somebody that's sort of a black mark of the community. So um, that kind of a thing is something I was really brought up and I could, I could see it all around me. And, I, and not just the distaste for Japanese people, which was out there, um, but the distaste for anybody who's effeminate, effeminate mm. males, effeminate boys, um, the level of sort of like disgust that that would uh, incite in others was was uh, was was it was certainly telling. From my point of view, it was another part of my education. So that level, I mean, that level of you adopt. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this other people too. The, the the racism and the homophobia around you, you have a tendency to try to incorporate it and even internalize it for the purpose of trying to be like everybody else. And as despicable it is, as it is to fit in with the bigots, you have to be able to talk that language and, uh, and to try to adopt that perspective. So um, it happens in a, in a racist place, a racist country, that, 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 that sometimes to conform, just to be like everybody else, you have to take on some pretty evil um, <laughs> attributes. Right. Thank goodness there are pockets of humanity um, all around us. Actually, there's always some people that got some sense and got some morals, and and can you know can guide you. And that's where it comes from. All the leaders, all your role models, everybody else, none of them are trans. Mm. <laughs> no one's ever came across any you know. It was like I said, there wasn't even a word for it for most of my life. I do remember. Oh, I'm, I was gonna I was gonna mention 1959 is when Christine Jorgensen came out. Former soldier George Jorgensen went to Denmark or some of those Scandinavian countries and got a sex change, and it was it was the biggest deal in 1952. It made all the papers and all the news and everything else, but the response that people had to it was complete revulsion and um, and disrespect. Right. So that phenomenon, I, I remember reading it in the papers. And uh, I take the paper to my mom. <laughs> they say, hey, mom, there's somebody else like me out there in the world. And she's ironing. <laughs> she's looking at the eyes. And she lowered her head. And, and I could see this was, not, <laughs> this was not going over well with her. You know, She looks at me. She starts crying. And um, that changed my trajectory with respect to even being openly trying to find out about it. Basically, I said mm -hmm. that was really drove that underground in that sense. Uh -huh. uh, from that point forward, really, uh, I never, I never exposed her to it. Really, I tried so that she never saw any of it or was evident. And yet, I, I will say, I shared this with the mom for, for your podcast. Actually, she was the coolest person in the family because when my father died, there was a gay person that came and lived with us. We had like a little boarding house there uh, in uh, in the middle of Los Angeles, and I remember that at one point she came to me, she says, hey, I'm in this band. She was a musician. She played all these different instruments. She played mostly guitar, ukulele, and saxophone. But anyway, she says, I play in this band, and these, these men are homosexuals. <laughs> she was playing in a gay band, and she was so, she said, don't tell your brothers, you know, they're going to really be upset. <laughs> it was like, he says, but I really like them. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> 
they call me Auntie Mame. <laughs> <laughs> how fun. How cool. Yeah, she was having a good time and she never told them. Wow. She went to her grave without telling, because she always felt that, you know, that the only person that was not going to judge her was me because I was so weird to begin with. You know what I mean? She knew it was cool with me, whatever. You know. so I thought it was fabulous. I thought it was so cool that she would be so readily accepted by these other musicians. And these guys were rich. The guys uh -huh. she was hanging out with were all lived in the Hollywood Hills, and they were designers, interior designers, um, fashion designers, and they were they were fabulously rich, all of them. And so she hung out with this really this crowd that showed her a really good time. It's where cool. the parties that she, they went to. But she described these guys, and it was so funny. I mean, she said, there's a guy named Fifi. I swear, his name is Fifi. <laughs> wow. Said guy that he says he acts like an animal, and he wears leather. <laughs> she was just so fascinated by these guys. It was hilarious. I'm sure at that time, it was probably just a totally different world that yeah. never has been exposed to. Yeah. So, you know, I know you said your dad was a lawyer, mm -hmm. but, you know, what made you decide to pursue the career in law? Because you could have gone the musician route, joined this awesome band with your mom, or <laughs> follow and like, go with the law uh, pursuit. But what, what inspired you to do that? Was it your dad or just what you were seeing around you? You know what's interesting? I, 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 I went into the Army. Mm. And um, at the time I went into the army, uh, I had just graduated college and I really didn't see any kind of a future. It wasn't until I realized that I was probably going to survive the Vietnam War that I decided to apply for law school. And really, I guess that was guided by my dad. I didn't really know what he did. I mean, there was very few Asian American lawyers around any place in those days. He graduated law school in 1928. So his practice was on the dark ages of the segregated bar. So that's a really different kind of life that he lived. But anyway, um, I saw what he did. Um, and you know, really, uh, he, I really never, I thought about it. I applied to law school in my, in my law school application. I remember telling UCLA that the reason I'm applying to law school is I'm a poet. And um, I'll never make any money being a poet, so I need a job here to support my art. And they actually accepted me earlier. And I, I guess they wow. thought, um, I didn't, I didn't really think they would take me in. So I figured, why not tell the truth? <laughs> but anyway, so my dad, though, his history of being a civil rights activist, uh, a human rights activist, and never uh, letting go sort of, of the morality of the, of what, what, of the work. Um, he had a couple of them. For instance, he was very religious. He, he didn't do divorces. He refused to do a divorce. Hmm. Uh, anything that was, was from him, you know, exploitative, um, was immoral. He felt that um, getting rich off the misery of other people was completely immoral. So he always, we were always poor, <laughs> you know? But I had no problem with that. I'd much rather in retrospect have had that legacy than yeah. to be some rich, you know, person, you know, with, I've seen how it takes to get to be rich, you know, either in any event. So uh, the fact that he was so committed to his principles and so, um, so caring of other people, basically, that's that's something I thought was a pretty good. You know, honestly, when I was a little kid, I'd go to his office, and I'd be sitting there reading comic books, waiting, you know, in the waiting room there because after school to get out of his office, my mom would pick us up. There'd be a guy sitting next to me, would look through his papers. Man, the dude was like really anxiety ridden. They go up to the door, you know, booted people are, they bow and stuff like that. He goes in, and then this really worried cat would come out, and he's bawling and he's smiling and he's, you know, and he's happy, and he goes out the door, and I'm thinking, wow. You know, this cat, you know, he, 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 my dad made him happy, you know, 
to go back and look at it, just a bunch of books in there, man. You know, it's like, uh, he must be a therapist, I figured. Huh. That was the closest I could come to it, honestly. You know, so when um, when it came time for me, to, I'm going to get out of the Army. What am I going to do, you know? Um, I wasn't sure I was going to get out of the Army. I was, I was in like the middle of my tour in Vietnam. Wow. But I figured um, two things. So I get accepted to law school, which was the next step. Then I get a slightly early out. They can give you 30 days out. That's like huge when you're, when you're in a war zone as, as much as, depending on how much time you needed to, to, to get to the school that was starting. So um, I got a little bit of an early out. And it's like, you know, I, I applied for law school and um, I sort of found my way. There. I mean, honestly, because in my first year of law school, I just wanted to show the white boys what we could do. I wanted, we were the first Asians and I just felt really a big old huge chip on my shoulder about being an Asian American lawyer. Um, and um, I just wanted to have the highest grades in the school. That's all I wanted, you know, basically. Uh, that didn't happen, but I, I was up there because I made the effort. Mm. But in our second year of law school, I realized that there weren't very many Asian people <laughs> in the law school. Right. And what happened was there had never been more than two Asian Americans in the UCLA law school in any year before we started. But there was like seven of us my year. So you kind of get complacent, right? You figure, okay, they're doing right by my community. Next year, there was two. Hmm. But we organized, and that was like the start of sort of an organized because I had been involved with the anti-war, you know, community, but not the Asian American political oh. community. You know, I had never been involved, and in that really, I mean, my dad had been a civil rights activist, but primarily through the black community. Hmm. You know, it wasn't it wasn't kind of for us. You know, it was although he wasn't active with Japanese American groups and stuff like that, but um, getting involved with organizing Asian Americans. In law, I uh, use the example of the Chicano law students, and they just happen to be my friends anyway, and the black law students, and they actually help guide the Asian American law students into existence and into ac action, basically, because we had a lot of things that we had to get done in order to, to establish a student group. Because, you know, law school is only three years, and we start in the second year, and we've got two years to get this done, get organized, get, get situated, and then and then start advancing towards our mission, which is, you know, at the time it was, it was inclusion of Asian Americans, but it was also inclusion of all minorities. And we, we were part of a larger movement. I mean, mm -hmm. I, they were there and, you know, and they really were very welcoming and inviting of, of our participation. And uh, that's when it kind of all started. I mean, I, in terms of organizing people, I had never organized people before that, you know, going around the law school, like a Xerox machine, we're going to have a meeting. The Asian lawsuit is going to be in room 1437 at lunch. Bring a bag. Lunch. We're going to talk about and And believe me, you know, I got some bullshit from people like, oh, man, who do you think you are? The Martin Luther King and the Buddha heads? Um, you get that kind of scoffing. I had this one guy, I remember Gary Yano tells me, he says, why should I help, you know, these people? I'm going to be competing with them when I get out of school. I said, the answer is, if that's your perspective, you need to go find another group, you know? Because we're going to try to help those very folks right. you're going to be competing with. And if you have that attitude, man, you can be competing with anybody. Yeah. You ain't going to be any good, period. We don't need you in the courts. Yeah. In any event. You know, so we had a whole variety of responses to organizing. And that was my experience with it. And I realized if you have a good sense of humor, you can be an organizer. Because no matter which crap you get to people, you got to fixate on your goal and your mission and your ideals. And uh, nobody can shake you once you've understood what it is you feel like you've got to do. So that was my experience. I carried that through to, to law. 
Um, that's why I, I was motivated to organize all these organizations, you know, really started with the lawsuit organization. But it's still, I'm still looking for the, the, the critical mass to, to fight back against the fascist right wing of the Republican Party. Um, that's always sort of a continuing struggle, kind of like working at the grassroots and trying to, trying to do education and trying to get involved in dialogue and, and conversation. But it's, to me, it's, it's always been, it's more important to lead a group than to be an individual principal voice, no matter what it is, because you eventually paint yourself into a corner with your ideals. Mm. And that's fine if you don't mind being completely uninfluential. <laughs> you yeah. don't matter about that. But it's like RBG used to say, right? Fight for what you believe in, but do it in a way that brings other people along that motivates them to want to be a part of the same campaign and the same movement. Yeah, I do that all the time with respect to the stuff I, I are you on Facebook, by the way? I am. I... Okay. Well, it's a friend said a speech I made to the criminal justice section of County Bar. And I want you to check it out. Okay. It's only 10 minutes, it's only 10 minutes but, it's, but it's, you know, uh, my wife said it was good, so that means it was, it was okay. It's better okay. than something I've done before. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. No, please Definitely. We'll, we'll, I'll get that link from you afterward. Um, but you know, you're, you've discussed like the, the law school and how, you know, there weren't many of you, uh, Asian American law school students, but how did that translate to being an Asian American lawyer when there weren't many of you? Like how were the early days of your career? I feel like it was always still that I had a chip on my shoulder. I want something to prove. I, I felt the weight of the community on my shoulders. There was not very many Asian Americans, probably. Um, and so I felt a very strong sense of duty. That's always been a driving force in my life. Uh, and I felt like, yeah, I mean, that was two things. I mean, <clears throat> I, wanted to get as, I wanted to do as well as I could in law school. I wanted to show the white boys what we could do academically. Then I, I, I've always sort of my ideal was to work for the poor. So, um, I always felt that was the highest calling, you know, to, to try to even the, the score for some of these folks. So in any event, I went to work for Legal Aid Foundation of LA, um, practicing poverty law, which is civil law for, for poor folks. And um, after that three years, I, I joined the public defender's office. And um, so I translated that way. I mean, I, I, here's the thing. I mean, if you think about it for a second, the things that I, that were closest to my heart are prisoners, are, mm. are people that are, that are uh, uh, you know, incarcerated and in our case we were guilty we were japanese american you know? <laughs> you know and when i was a beginning public defender you know we got a lot of cynicism there are very few asian americans in the courts and i got a black client he's a tough guy and he's been around he's been in prison blah 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 and he's asking me why should you care about me you know what i mean um you're you're this asian american you're the white man's auxiliary you know what i mean as far as we're concerned you know huh. and i would tell him you know dude i was born doing time you think mm. I don't know that? And if you think I don't understand that people get put in jail for their race, then you don't understand me or my history. And I'll tell you something else. I'm asking for your trust. Don't trust me. I will prove myself to you before this is over. I promise you that. Don't trust me. Don't trust anybody that says trust me. So that was my attitude when I was starting off as a public defender. It was always like, you know, um, I don't want to break. So I want to be able to do this as well as anybody else. I want to show you what we can do. I'm sure you not only we can do it, we can do it better. Mm. And if we can't do that, then we we got no business elbowing our way into this profession. Certainly at the highest levels in the trial courts, where you got to put it on the line. Yeah. So 
Um, the, the work, yeah, I mean, for the longest time, it was mostly, um, when you're a public defender, it's an all-consuming job. You, you don't have that many nights uh, to yourself. But I still managed to, to, you know, start a rock and roll band during that period of time and actually worked the streets for 25 years. Wow. I didn't know that. You know, to get a job, I mean, that's pretty hard. Um, But I got the gigs. (laughs) Wow. So you did end up pursuing both your mom and your... (laughs) Wow. We played the Orpheum Theater. We played the Hollywood Palladium. We played all the clubs, discos, you know, places in Los Angeles. You know, we start off with you're playing quinceañeras. You're playing, you know, (laughs) you're playing weddings, you're playing birthday parties, graduation parties. And we did a lot of that, but you know, you, you, uh, the more you play, the better you get, honestly. And you know, by the end of that 25 years, I had like a hundred songs completely memorized. Wow. I didn't have to read them anymore. I had the chords completely and all my parts memorized in terms of like the, the band, you know, um, arrangements. And, uh, I got to the point where I, I could hear it on the radio. I know exactly what my part was. In the band that <laughs> yeah. I'm going to need the <laughs> link, not only to your speech on Facebook, but I'm going to need the link to these, to your band performances as well now okay yeah <laughs> that's more, yeah okay some of that gets recorded some of it does some of it yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so you're going through all of this 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 work life you're you're also working gigs and you know you've worked through so much of you know you you've already done so much but in the back of your head because I, to my understanding, you, you you're still having dealing with this mismatch because oh, it wasn't until later until life when you really fully addressed it. So, can you discuss this mismatch and how that's still playing in the background, or maybe it's at the forefront, but how that's playing through while you're doing all of this? I think a couple of things that that actually got me through that period of time. The music definitely got me through. It kept me alive in many ways because I always had another gig, another rehearsal and others. I couldn't let my band down because your band becomes in many ways a more important family than, than even your family. You travel with them, you work with them, you go through a lot with your band. And I was with them for 25 years. So that that was one source of life for me. It was one way that I had to keep going. I, had to, I, couldn't, I couldn't snuff myself out. But the politics at some point, yeah, it started to matter to me. I left the public defender's office after 10 years and the reason I left is because I had to get involved in political dialogue. I had to fight against the death penalty. That was my number one goal coming out of law school. I'm going to fight again. I'm coming out of the public defender's office. I could no longer be employed by the government and continue to, to defy and basically um, fight against the government on the, on the death penalty. So I went out, and that's when I organized. I got on. I joined the Japanese American Bar Association. Uh, primarily because they had a Korean president, so I kind of liked the diversity that we were <laughs> in any event. And then I started a group, and uh, it was a group to fight for the Supreme Court, for Roseburg, Joseph Godin, and Cruzin also, um, because they were being targeted by the Republicans for their refusal to, to affirm uh, death penalty sentences. And so we went out um, with a joint bar association, Korean, Japanese, Filipino, and Chinese, and we went out to all the communities and went to the schools, the churches, community organizations, and we lost. <laughs> we lost. All three of those justices were defeated at the polls, and they were replaced by pro-death penalty jurists, and people started dying in California. And I couldn't get away from that. 
I became the president of the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice, which is a statewide criminal justice organization. I got involved with a whole bunch of different, I'm not going to mention all that, but I mean, I got involved with organizations. And I realized that organizations matter, that large populations in advocacy for issues matters more than small populations of people arguing for issues. So I'm always searching for ways in which we collaborate in a principled way. My, I want to just, one organization we called the Multicultural Bar Alliance, what we did was we got, after Natasha Harlins was shot to death by Sun Jadu in 1988 or, or nine, uh, we got together, the Black and, and Asian bars, we organized to go out to the community to show them that we're united, that we are not each other's throats like the media would like to depict us as being, and uh, that we, um, we seek to empower our communities against the white power structure, uh, against white supremacy. And um, in 1992, we lost that one too. <laughs> it's like the riots started over uh, and it was all the things that we were trying to stop um, happened. And um, we continued and we still continued and we continued under three different principles. One, support for black and brown students in higher education. Issue number one. Issue number two, justice and humanity for immigrants and for the rights of immigrants. And number three, gay rights. The rights of gay people to marry and to adopt, etc. Now, you talk about controversy. This is the 1980s. So reconciling people to these three principles, these three core principles, was work. It took a lot of dialogue, took a lot of conversations. People had to set aside some of their religious beliefs. And... Um, some people never did, you know, and it, it, to me, it was just like a pill cell. You know, if you couldn't be there for everybody, then get out. If you can't be there for the people that need advocacy for, for this for this larger mass, then go find someplace else to be, you know, in the coalition. But our coalition is going to be committed to core values. And I think the process, though, is still valuable to me is that we continue to dialogue that we continue to get people who are not in a place. I mean, lawyers are influential, and these are all bar associations, so they're all associations of lawyers. I always feel like, same thing, right? What would it have been like if the, if the concentration camps were proposed now, today? They have you and me, you know? And we're not gonna stand for it. And, and we're gonna go into the courts, we're gonna go into every single place we can go, and we're gonna advocate against injustice, period, racism. We need a group, though. We need each other. And that's something that, that as a transgender woman, I understand, because we are the most minuscule minority on the planet. Uh, we are also one of the most endangered uh, in terms of um, people uh, deciding that we don't belong uh, on this planet. So um, to be a beleaguered community is something that I have some experience with. You know, being, I think, being Asian American, being queer, um, and in my case, I almost invited, uh, I because I feel like I can't help anybody unless I'm really open and notorious. That I've got to be out there uh, and basically intruding upon people's comfort zones for the purpose of bringing them the truth, bringing them the reality, bringing them authenticity, <laughs> and all the things that they're probably not used to and they're not comfortable with. But they they do. To me, it matters in order to bring them into people's lives and in the conversation. And it's their sensibility, sorry. <laughs> but it's got to happen. Yeah. So at what point did you 
decide to to live your to to address the mismatch and because it's my understanding i would say 2003 when i turned 60 and the, the fact of turning 60 and facing the fact that i had spent 60 years in complete stealth was a completely embarrassing shameful moment that oh. i would be such a coward that i would be such a phony that i was fake wow that somehow or other this entire life i and and believe me i still had all these honors and things like that even be, before that but um they mattered not, not at all to me zero because it was given to somebody that wasn't me wow so at that point i decided um I couldn't live like that anymore. I refused. Uh, I came out. I started telling my close friends first. And the circles, you know, go through your family. In my case, I had to go through my clients, you know, and everybody else. Community organization, I had to confront everybody. And um, I think that um, it's, it's still part of the same process. I feel like all the way through being a pioneer as a Asian American lawyer in the trial courts, doing jury trials, that it's the same thing with being a transgender a lawyer to me it's like an even smaller minority but hopefully that that's I mean, it's exactly why i think i need a bigger voice i mean certainly i cannot be a shrinking violet i can't hide in the shadows like i have a great deal of experience doing <laughs> mm-hmm. um that i had to somehow come out into the daylight and um stand up and say this is who i am and this is i'm this is the place that I'm forging for myself in this society and in this world. And um, that hopefully is enough for somebody else who hears about it, who I can get to somehow to let them know that, hey, there's somebody else that's like me. So because, you know, you, you, wanted, you, you said that you were hiding in the shadows for 60 years. But, you know, how did this impact your career it's 2003 and this is new you know so you know i and people i mean one thing i keep thinking about is obviously how you know the media or certain media outlets try to paint uh transitioning as like a way of like capital gain or like oh they're doing it to make money like advertising that that bud light uh dylan mulvaney and it's like no like for you, so like, I just want to hear from you, like, how did this impact your career? Well, you know, it's interesting because people like, for instance, that, that woman that's a swimmer, that's a transgender swimmer, everybody right. wants to say, oh, you're trying to do this to get an advantage you know, right. so you can get yourself a medal and stuff like that. Um, there is nobody in this world that ever goes through transition for the purpose of getting into an athletic contest. And uh, the, the whole idea that somehow or other that this would be welcomed is in the idea that I always use the example of two women meeting out there in the street and saying, oh, well, what happened to your son? Oh, he went through a sex change. He's my daughter now. And um, I try to imagine the other neighbor saying, oh, you must be so happy. That's such a wonderful thing to happen to your son. Uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Most instances, people will be shocked, in some cases appalled, et cetera, depending on their, their values, I guess. But um, the fact is that that moment is so important. So the way that I've always approached it when I was going to start going to court dress, for instance, um, I took oh, ornaments, things like that, earrings and stuff like that that have been given to me by my friends. I'm wearing the things that are given to me by the people that love me and support my transition. I'm going to liberate the criminal courts building tomorrow morning. 
I'm going to make them experience something that they've never experienced before and they can never unsee again. And I'm going to do that at the jails. I'm going to do that in the DA's office. I'm going to do it in the prison. I'm going to do it in every single place where I've ever been and continue to be. And so I had to have that sort of idea. I'm going to liberate the Compton Courthouse. I'm going to liberate the criminal courts building. And this is going to be something that's going to be very uncomfortable for me. And again, something for which there's no roadmaps or role models. But um, if it helps other people to do it this way, then I've got to be as open as possible. And again, like I said, I'm going to be notorious. That's the reason why I really appreciate the opportunity on any kind of a podcast to speak my truth. Um, I certainly spoke a lot of bullshit for a lot of years. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I can offset for some of it. <laughs> <laughs> So, because you you mentioned the being embarrassed part, especially in the when you first transitioned. So I was going to ask you about the the short term impact and the long term impact, but I think it's going to be more complex than just you know how did this impact your mental health short term and long term. So I think just in the early days of when you transitioned, how did it impact your mental health in both you know were there pros and were there cons or was it I, I, I'd be surprised if it was a clear cut, it was pure liberation. Well, no, not at all. Uh, right. There, there's obviously going to be resistance in certain quarters um, because it is uncomfortable to experience somebody in a way that you've never experienced with them before. And, and you always know them a certain way. So there is the weight of the past in that regard in terms of people's perception and um, the way they accept you currently. In other words, if I had a pretty good relationship with anybody, then it was a pretty good transition. Uh, if I didn't, then there was basically nothing at all because um, you know it would just be like they didn't know who I was. Kind mm. of thing. So that was fine. I mean, again, I, I'm just there to assert myself. And if, if, if this makes it easier for anybody else coming behind me, and definitely, let me just say this. Once I came out, a couple of DAs came out mm. uh, after me. And wow. I, and, and I'm sure, because I've talked to them, but I'm sure they could not have come out, period, or they wouldn't have found the courage unless I had done it first. Right. So it, so people following me in my wake, I always felt like, you know, same thing, right? you got to be a great lawyer. You can't be a schlub. You know what I mean? Not if you're representing your community. You've got to be really good. You've got to be as good mm -hmm. as you can be. So all of these things, I think, happen as much in the queer community today as they do did in the Asian community back in the you know, 60s and 70s. Today, there's plenty of Asian Americans in the law. We're all over the place. Uh, so I don't, I don't worry about our inclusion in school. I worry about black and brown people being excluded from higher education. Across the country, it's been happening, even, even the coasts. So that's still my crusade. That's still something that's really important to me because as long as I've been around, um, you know, the reason why Asian people <laughs> were in law school, we just didn't go. I mean, we weren't applying. I'm sure of that because, you know, um, our academic record is certainly as good as anybody else. And as it turns out, our ability to be lawyers and, and, to, and to behave and, and to produce and contribute as, as lawyers is as good as anybody else's, really. So um, I think that, that we, we've never, it wasn't anything that we ever anything to prove. It was always the, the, the lawyers of color right. trying to establish that, you know, we could perform as well as the white boys. Uh, they don't believe it. But we know it's true, and we're going to be able to show it. We're going to, we're going to have to produce for the purpose of coming to that conclusion, but we will. So mm -hmm. that was an inevitability in, in my view. 
uh, I think most people have the same view as me. If you're a minority lawyer, you do feel as though you got some obligation to, mm. to community. So I think I think most ones in us, the parasites <laughs> that exist in every community, um, they only see things for themselves. Mm. So, so, so yeah. So it sounds like you know, or it's clear that it was multifaceted in terms of the short-term impact on your mental health, but long-term. You've had your years removed now from when you first transitioned, when you first came out. How has it impacted your mental health uh, in the long term now? I think it's spectacular. Uh, the difference between where I was before my transition and where I am now, 20 years into it, um, is spectacular, it's, uh, especially in comparison. I mean, think about that. You know, I spent 60 years, you know, as Michael in... Mm. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because the more acclaim you get in a particular identity, the harder it is to give it up. Uh, um, right. Know, I mean, in one facet, to just talk about, you know, I, I needed to get old for this to happen in some ways because I love women. I have always loved women. <laughs> and I'll tell you the truth. I mean, ever since I was probably six years old, I adored women. I just loved all the girls <laughs> because I always had a crush. And even when the girls were completely hated by the boys and everything else, I just loved them. I had questions <laughs> with first grade. And so all the way through my, those years, those 60 years, it was really easy because I was falling in love left and right with women, with beautiful women. Um, and I would have great relationships with them, but I'd have this identity issue just lurking there, haunting me, waking up with it, going to sleep with it. It would not leave me alone. You think that, and we believe that because we're idealists, that love can conquer all. If you can somehow conquer everything, including that, and you're, you're wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. The real problem, the thing I do tell out there is that this is a complete inevitability about this particular identity. And as you age, it becomes consistently, progressively more insistent that, that your libido is going downhill, your need to transition is going uphill. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that it really, in old age, you, you, it was, it was, you know, I'm sitting up here playing some guitar, but I'm doing some benefit. And all of a sudden, it's my 60th birthday. People have a surprise birthday party. And everybody's up there on the microphone, what a great person I am. And I'm thinking, how would you feel if I would kill that dude? That's what I was thinking. At that part, I wow. you know, since happy 60th birthday, what a milestone. You've done all these great things in your life. You've been this leader, you've been blah, blah. And I'm thinking, what if I kill that? Wow. You know, literally, that was going through my head. And, um, but at that moment, I just said, you know, I'm done with this. You know, I'm yeah. gonna start walk I started walking around the party telling I'm trans. I'm wow. going to the sex change. And, um, you know, if, if you don't like it, sorry. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, I was going through this. And, and so the mental health, let me just say this. I spent at least 20 years going through serious therapy, minimum 20, but probably as many as 40, because off and on, I wasn't always in. But the last therapy, the most profoundly influential therapy I went through was group therapy wow. with other transgender people. And watching people, because I knew when I was a typical cis, heterosexual male, loved women, you know, and this almost happened to me. I was seeing these guys who were married with children, who, whose families could not accept their gender issues, and they were struggling and they were sent to therapy by their families or people who were business people whose companies needed them to be there and 
I see their lives. I remember watching them and thinking, you know, they talk about what anxiety they're going through with their wife and kids. I'm thinking, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to drag some poor woman through my transition. I'm never going to drag these kids through transition. I refuse. Because I'm seeing what kind of struggles these guys go through. I mean, I was already 70 years old when my wife came along. I figured, I figured this is the truth. I had figured I had dodged it, man. I'm 70 years old. You know, dating is over. All that sort of bebop is, is in the past. I don't have to deal with it. And then this thing happens. You know? <laughs> I, I remember at the time being just like sitting in these therapy sessions and I feel so bad for these guys. You know, they can't transition. Their family won't stand for it. You know, it's like they reminded me of the kids I represented when I was in public defender, when I was in oh. court, working with 13 or 14-year-old kids who are trans and, and they get kicked out of their homes, you know, because their families don't like the way they dress. And so they end up on the streets and they end up doing stuff to survive. Wow. And they end up in juvenile hall. Yeah. <laughs> on yeah. my kids. And I have to say, those people used to put me to shame, though. I mean, here I was, a public defender. I was relatively, you know, educated and everything else. These are little kids, man. And they had more courage than me. They, they stood up to their families and ready to walk out of the house and live on the streets rather than not be themselves. I had such respect for them. Um, but I couldn't do anything for them. I mean, they would always end up in, in foster homes and stuff. I would try to get the parents to take them home. I remember that. That was my big struggle. Please take them home. I can get the judge to do it. This is minor offenses. I can't take them home. His brothers will kill him. Wow. They promised to kill him. They threatened to kill him. I can't bring him home. Wow. I will not endanger my child that way. And looking at that and trying to find a place for myself in the world while this is all going on, you know, and, and, and uh, every time I go out to the streets, all the people I ever meet were drag queen prostitutes and in case of the nightclubs, female impersonators. And, you know, I, I would become friendly with them at least and I'd get, they'd get to see me around that kind of thing. But then I'd realize that we had nothing in common. You know, we weren't very much alike, you know, and I didn't connect to them very well at all. And I remember feeling like I'm really alone. You know, nobody else is like me. You know, just, uh, and that's another mismatch. I mean, when you're dressed up as a woman, believe me, it's not the women who are interested in you. <laughs> this is very opposite. It's really uncomfortable. Uh -huh. um, but it gives you it gives you a taste of what women have to go through themselves. Right. You just walk down the street, trying to just live your life without people intruding upon you. You know, so that was that's good for you. You know, it's interesting. I mean, this is kind of an aside, but I just had cataract surgery, and before that, I was walking around stumbling. I couldn't barely see and shit. And it's like this: I got a deep appreciation of my vision and what it would like be like to be a blind person or a person uh. really sight impaired person. And it really gave me that grateful feeling that you know. These gifts are, are not to be taken for granted at all, basically. You have to be grateful, you know? Right. So, yeah, it, it, to continue on with the conversation, all of that I'm grateful for. And my mental health is, is, like I say, spectacular. I would have to describe it as that because I feel so strong and so healthy. I feel like whatever happens, I've got the courage to face it. Uh, I, I have the, the will to follow through with it. And um, all those things because I am authentic because I'm real and then I'm asserting my right to it. And then as long as I'm doing that, then whatever happens to me, I feel like I've fulfilled myself my life in, in many ways. You know, one of the things I remember going to court, they did an article on me, the Daily Journal, this is a legal daily paper, and they did a feature on me. And I remember 
I went to court, sent letters to all the judges about being, you know, coming to court and I'm going to be dressed and blah, blah, blah. And the one judge, the hanging judge of Los Angeles, had a death penalty case in front of him. And I said, Judge, I can't keep going on this case. If you decide there's any kind of prejudice to my client by my gender transition, you got to take me off the case and I refuse to keep going. And he said, no, I read the article about you in the paper, in the legal paper, and the part where you said, if you couldn't die as a woman, you'd feel like you never lived. He's, and then he started to choke up. Now, nobody in the court had ever seen that before in history. But I, I was stunned. My client was stunned. I looked at the lawyers behind me, and their jaws were dropping. <laughs> I mean, it was like amazing. I'd never seen it. He got choked up. He went back into chambers and came back out. This is a judge who used to wear a, a gun under his robes. Uh, he, was, mm-hmm. he was a death penalty advocate for the prosecution. He, I don't know how many people he put on death row. But um, <laughs> I know he was well-meaning, but he was a very wicked man in law. Because he would really send out harsh sentences and harsh results on cases that I didn't feel were justified at all. It was always just like, you know, oh, this is a horrible crime, you're gone. You know, um, but anyway, so that was his reaction. He actually wow. had some measure. I mean, it really affected him. And, um, and I had a lot of that actually going around. And, I, you know, at first, uh, my first reaction was I was moved to tears by how little I had expected from my peers and from the system. But people have said to me, since you had 30, 40 years in the system, you know, it's, it's not like you didn't have a history. It wasn't like anybody didn't know you. You are still the same person you've been for all those decades. He said, you know, and once that was clear, it made everybody a lot more relaxed about it. You know, still the same person, presenting different, no question. Right. And and believing, I mean, but but my my assertion of myself absolutely has been, you know, I feel like, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of uncomfortable situations because I can't be what is comfortable for everybody. Right. I'm going to bring some discomfort in people's lives. I understand the burden that that is. I really don't like doing that to my friends and relatives. But uh, the truth has to be sometimes radically presented in order to be radically accepted. That's kind of like the way I look at it. I'm not going to soft pedal it or give it to people in stages, so to speak. It is what it is, and I'm going right. to continue to sort it 100%. Uh, I'm not going to hold anything back. I spent a whole lifetime holding shit back. You know? Right. So right. at this point, in terms of mental health, I, mean, I guess the world, I could be happier. Russia can withdraw from Ukraine. There's a lot of different ways that I could be happier, I guess, in this world. But gee, mental health, what I've got inside of me is um, extraordinarily comforting. Um, and whatever adversity I have to face outside of this, uh, outside of myself, I feel like I'm strong enough to face it. Wow. And I announce that to people all the time. You know what I mean? If it's got to come my way, then fine. I feel like I'm the one who should face it. Right. So one thing that strikes me in kind of wrapping things up here uh, is, I mean, it's been clear through articles written about you and the awards you've received but one thing that you said a while back was the da's that would come out after you did and those are in-person experiences where it's been proven that you're a role model to people what does that mean to you to kind of present that roadmap for other people to follow and to have be a role model to people like how what kind of 
when you look back on things, what kind of comfort or feelings does that give you? I'm extraordinarily satisfied with the idea that I've made room for other people because it, that's what I set out to do. And uh, if I can make it easier for people to be themselves, if I can bring some measure of comfort or relief to people that are struggling with coming out, then I feel like, then yeah, I've been useful, I've been helpful. I mean, what else can we be in this world, <laughs> you know? Right. I feel like it's always been my place to be useful and to be helpful to other people. This being a lawyer, I'm helping other people who are in trouble, who need my help. That's, that's a way to have uh, a purpose in the life. And I think that, right, I mean, we know that. <laughs> you know, if, if you've got a purpose to drive towards, then it's like you can always judge your actions by the purity of your intention. You know, it is really important that we live up to our values, that we live up to our ideals, and that we hold fast to our, our values to me and take all the adversity we've got to face, all the, all the horror, all the sadness, all the suffering, and all of it is part of our humanity. I believe that it contributes to the evolution of our spirit and that it, it can it can absolutely elevate us. I feel that way very strongly. So I'm willing to take on what I've got to take on. It's, it's, you know, I wasn't here for comfort, you know. I was here for the challenges of this world, and I feel like in they, the, the whole point of these things is that, is that they, they are worth doing. And that is, whatever, how hard it is or whatever it is, that if it's worth doing, then we take that on. And, then, and that's, that's what I'm going to do. You know, that's what we choose to do. So, um, all of this time, I, have, I feel completely liberated. Yeah, I mean, I'm not worried about about my cover stories or my um, or, or any other alterations of, of my my life and my history. Um, I completely embrace it all now and uh, shine a light on it. And uh, I'm not going to hide from any of it. And that includes now. Um, I feel like I've got to be as completely honest with you as possible because there's no value to uh, to bullshit. There's no value to falsity and lies. Uh, I feel like the only only people that profit from that are the fascists and the bullies and people that would like to have everybody look at the world their way. Um, our truth has to keep shining through. Our, our truth is, is in many ways all we have. So why would we not embrace it? Why would we not, in my case, certainly, why would I not just absolutely project it and and be what I give to the world. I feel like you know, my voice, my presence, um, all these things are important things that I give to the world, essentially, and try to make it, make it better. Um, I think Charles Hamilton, he was, he was a mentor to the great Thurgood Marshall. He used to say that any lawyer who is not a social engineer is a parasite on society. And I've already seen that with respect to the legal profession, certainly. You know, there's people that absolutely are not making things any better. Um, who are just sitting pat and they make, are making things worse. It is the way that they do nothing to make it better that makes things worse. And that's what he was talking about. I think the guy from the 1920s talking about lawyers and, and their obligations to society. And uh, it still remains true. I mean, what kind of a life is that for people? Sure, you live in luxury and stuff like that, but um, the effect it has on the rest of the world is, is extraordinarily important. Uh, one rich person can impoverish a thousand poor people and uh, I've always looked at it that way. There's, there's, there's a cause of justice and there's a cause of, of most legal professionals. <laughs> that <way. laughs> well, Mia, thank you so much for that. 
and for all of your time. Uh, we are wrapping up here soon. Uh, we, I do a quick fire round to end it. People sure. sometimes say it's the hardest part, but I think it's just kind of fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to say before I get to some of these these fun questions? Just support PFLAG, support the parents of transgender kids, support transgender kids. Um, fight for the rights of the people that have the least power. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is an important uh, aspect of it. Give a voice to the voiceless. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. And I, I great way to end the, the more serious part. Okay. Uh, but the first one is of this quick fire round is if you could sure. invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be? Dead or alive? Probably, uh, oh God. Let me see. Mohammed, um, Abraham, um, Winston Churchill. Huh. Um, James Joyce. <laughs> and John Ford. Okay. <laughs> um, as mentioned earlier, you have won many awards and you've commentated for different outlets. You've had a lot of accomplishments, but, and you've also spoken to some very powerful people. With all that said, have you ever been starstruck by anyone you've met? I, I think, um, I think Bruce Springsteen, I, I was starstruck. Wow. You know, by him, I just I still think he's a great musician. I met all the guys in the band, actually, very soon. Wow. What happened was I was representing some of the staffers on the, on the crew on the tour. And so I got backstage passes for almost for two years. Wow. Um, I went to as many shows as I possibly could. And so I was backstage all the time. But he was the one that he didn't, he didn't get into conversation. It was like, you know, he just mumbled something and walked away. Especially when he's backstage, he's all business. But when I'm, I was hanging out back there, I would talk with Clarence Clemens. Do you know anything about the band? Um, I don't, but I, I, I just know that Springsteen's known for being like one of the great touring artists. Right. You That's know, if you ever see him in concerts, whoa. You know, he's uh-huh. pretty amazing. But in any event, so uh, yeah, I was starstruck by him, I have to say. Wow. Very cool. Is there anyone else or is that like the first, the, is that the guy? That's got to be it. I mean, I uh-huh. can't think of anything else. I mean, I've met, wow. You know, a lot of different people in my life, but but that was the one I have to remember. I was just kind of like I was I was at a loss for words. Yeah. Uh, in the same vein, is it possible for you to identify a greatest accomplishment of your life so far? My transition. Wow. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that's the greatest accomplishment of my life, and it's wow. an accomplishment. Yeah. You got to get it done. You got to go through a whole lot of surgery and crap like that. And you've got to you've got to put a burden of, of yeah. on on everybody around you. That's but, yeah, it, but uh, accomplishment, yeah. I just well look at everything else. No, I don't look at it that way. Wow. I, I will say this in terms of having a rock and roll band for twenty five years, leading a band, being a lead singer was one of the great experiences of my life. I have to say, to have to go into a big ballroom and to walk into that place and. Everybody's milling around, having conversations. Starting with the music, having the whole place explode into dancing, um, is is I, I wish everybody could experience that. I mean, yeah. really, especially a lead singer, that, <laughs> you know, you get so much attention. You get, I mean, you're not even deserved. I, I was in a band with a whole bunch of ringers. These guys that had long careers of professional musicians. I got to the point. I shared this with you. I would, I'd walk into 
bars and stuff. I always think, gee, I hope these guys like us. You know, <laughs> I hope the audience. And by, after 10 or 15 years, I would walk in and I'd say, pretty soon you're all going to be smiling. <laughs> and then you're going to hear the music and you're all going to be dancing. Awesome. And by the end of the evening, you're going to want to take me home with you. <laughs> <laughs> Mia, a common thread I've seen now is that you had quite a bit of game with uh, <laughs> with the people you're interested in. It seems like you've had you had like some good pickup lines or something to you. No, but... I, you know, it's interesting. The people thought that I think all my friends that they, they were so blown away when I transitioned. They said, "God, we used to see you with all these women all the time." So, all these beautiful women. But you know, I was one of these people, I guess I was the kind of guy that hung out with a lot of good looking women, but I was totally monogamous, or at least serially. You know what I mean? I would never mess around with a woman I was right. with. But but you know, going to a, an event or something like that with somebody um was you know normal and, and I was the kind of guy really that was much more easy for women to be around because it was basically a woman. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I had a lot of company and a lot of really good friends and uh and it was amazing. I can't tell you the number of people thought that I was such a dog. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I, I wasn't, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem, to me, it doesn't seem like you were a dog. It just seems like you got what you wanted in yeah. an appropriate way. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I got a pretty good rap. <laughs> um, What's crazy about women, I think it just it showed absolutely, you know, you know I adore them. <laughs> uh, to round it out, and I, don't think I mean I think you could write a book about your game in that way, but <laughs> I hope it's in, I hope it's in the works because I think it's much well deserved. But what would or what is the title of your autobiography? Be? Good question. I had this one thing about confessions of a transgender defender, huh. but but it just sounded too corny for me, so I couldn't <laughs> use that. You know, so I don't know. I mean, I really don't. I mean, I never thought about. Honestly, I have, I've written some stuff for people, stuff like that, that, like, you know, like we're doing this type of thing. And we talk a little bit about your history and stuff, you know, but um, a unified memoir. Yeah, I, I, an agent actually contacted me. I wrote him something and he said it sucked. <laughs> he said I sounded too much like a lawyer, which I probably, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope. I hope something comes out eventually, because uh, I I loved talking to you. I've loved do, well, reading good about you. Too. I appreciated the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, and I hope I hope we have another opportunity down the road. I hope uh, so. Uh, I look forward to watching your speech on Facebook. And uh, yeah, Mia, thank you so night, much. Matter of fact, Thursday. Oh, okay. Night, I was in front of criminal justice section. Wow, wow. Okay, well, now, I'm gonna have to look up all your speeches. Yeah, because you know, part of it is like just like this conversation. I really don't prepare for anything. And the same thing with the speeches, you know what I mean? So uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say. I got a couple of things kind of in my mind and then I just go. So wow. you'll enjoy it. Cool. Cool. <laughs> I mean, well, again, thank you so much. Right. I look forward to talking again. Great. My pleasure. And thanks for that terrific talking to you, man. It's Great. So fun. <laughs> Great. Thank you again to Mia for being on the podcast and discussing uh, her transition. Uh, discussing her career, discussing her upbringing, discussing so much. And she, I mean, she really is just such an amazing speaker and was an honor to get to chat. So, you know, with all that said, uh, I hope you enjoy this episode and hearing uh, from Mia. And you could subscribe to our show for more episodes that release on every other Tuesday. Give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. 
If you would like to support our podcast and help us grow, you can do so with a donation to the link at the bottom of the episode description. To hear more about Changing Tides, follow us on Instagram at LTSC underscore Changing Tides or check out our website, thechangingtides.org. Let's continue to change the tide on mental health. We got, we got, we got.